1: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 52 through 55.
0: In this session, we're gonna explore four little Psalms, 52, 53, 54, and 55, which among other things will give us a prophetic picture that we get nowhere else of the coming of the Antichrist. Now these psalms can be studied devotionally in terms of personal application. That's fine. I'm not dismissing that. I'm sort of, in this particular session, going to take that for granted, that you can read them on your own in in a context-free environment and glean them for good counsel from the Holy Spirit. But we're going to explore these four little psalms from a dispensational point of view. we're going to learn a little bit about the coming of the Antichrist, the man of sin, who's going to be the world dictator and dominate Israel during the Great Tribulation. Our Lord referred to him during the Olivet Discourse. The prophet Daniel and the apostle Paul both spoke of the Antichrist. And One reason I think that very few commentators pick up on any of this because most pastors tend to want to avoid eschatology. Eschatology being the study of the last things, the final things. Eschatology is a challenging study because it will put to test your hermeneutics for consistency and the rest. And so it really, in very very real respects, is an advanced form of... I want to review the different ways we can explore psalms. I'll call it a devotional paradigm. The most traditional way of studying the psalms is to explore the past. David's predicament that led to the psalm or whatever, what his motives might have been. And very often that's a useful thing to do, and very often it's just a speculative thing. We're not sure. A more common way to look at the psalms is to look at it in its present tense sense. What does a psalm imply for Israel today? Because let's remember, this is Israel's hymn book. But for most of us, it's the personal application that's going to really want to prevail here. As you immerse yourself in a psalm, you reread it several times prayerfully. The question you want to try to get the answer is, how does this impact you today? Some of them may be very relevant, in fact, surprisingly relevant to your personal situation. And that's what will start to endear you to the Psalms in general. There are a number of Psalms that have a future tense. They're prophetic. The best known ones are known as Messianic Psalms. These are Psalms that clearly portray Jesus Christ and in fact are quoted as Messianic Psalms in the New Testament. To really qualify as a Messianic Psalm, not only does it need to apply to Christ, but there should be evidence of it expressed in the New Testament, to be really certain of that. For example, um, and notice, by the way, each one of these starts with a P. I like to do that just for, you know, alliterative purposes. But the Messianic Psalms, the the, the book of Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament from the Old Testament. The, The Messianic Psalms constitute irrefutable testimony to the divine inspiration of the scriptures. The fact that these psalms are so explicit is an astonishing support for the uh, uh, divine inspiration of the scriptures. And we could go through a lot of these. 2, 8, 16, 22, 23, th- 24. When we actually took a group of these, 22, 23, and 24, and uh, studied them specifically with this emphasis. And they were the shepherd psalms. Psalm 22, the suffering Savior. In Psalm 23, the living shepherd. In Psalm 24, the exalted sovereign, uh, the chief shepherd. So these three were a special study that we've been through where we took them specifically. And uh, it's astonishing to see how many messianic details are encompassed by the messianic psalms. About Christ's person, that he was the son of God, the son of man, and the son of David are all expressly mentioned in a number of different psalms. His offices a prophet priest, and king are express each in a number of psalms. These are well-traveled ground. The fact that he would speak in parables, that he would calm a storm, that he would be despised, that he'd be rejected, that he would be mocked, all in the psalms, that he'd be whipped, that he'd be derided, impaled on a cross, that it, whereupon he'd be thirsty, he'd be given wine mixed with gall, that lots would be cast for his garments while he hung there, not a bone was to be broken, all these details are sprinkled throughout the Psalms in an impressive way. That he would rise from the dead, that he would send to heaven, that he'd sit at the right hand of God, that he is our high priest, that he'll judge the nations, that his reign will be eternal, are all in the Psalms. That he is the Son of God, the Son of David, people sing Hosanna to him. All these things are there and be blessed forever. And it will come in glory in the last days. All these topics are dealt with in the Psalms. So that's the messianic psalm, but there's another kind of prophetic psalm that is missed by most commentators because they're, they're just not focused on eschatology, and I'll call that dispensationally considered. Taking a look at the whole panorama of human history and recognizing the different dispensations God has established throughout history, we see the psalms anticipate some of the forthcoming uh, eras that are, we're facing. Dispensationally considered. And we looked at a few of those a, a, a couple of sessions back. And uh, we looked at Psalm 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48. The first three were of the great tribulation, then the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the last three of his kingdom. And of those three, its arrival, its range, and its center. All pro- profiled rather uh, uh, crisply, rather clearly, in this group of uh, of uh, seven psalms, interestingly enough. So we did that a few sessions ago. Well, now we're going to look at four mashil psalms. Mashil means instruction. And uh, very few commentators pick up on this. And it is speculative. Um, Not everybody would agree with the perspective I'm going to suggest to you. I'm going to suggest it just tentatively for your consideration. If you see uh, this this way, great. If you don't, don't worry about it. It certainly... There are many uh, good scholars, sound scholars, who don't, wouldn't necessarily look at these from, in this perspective. But we'll do it for sort of a change of pace here. These th- psalms have the theme of the Antichrist. 52, I'm going to call that psalm the, Mr. Big Mouth. That's my unofficial title of the, the Antichrist. He has 33 titles in the Old Testament and 13 in the New. But that's the one I like to use because he's always shooting off his mouth. In, in, uh, in 2 Thess- Thessalonians in Revelation, he's always, and in Daniel 7 and 8, whatever. Psalm 53, was, he will specifically be involved in the denial of God. Psalm 53 is very much like Psalm 14, a, a, a commitment to atheism. Psalm 54 will deal with a believing remnant that are going to be under his thumb. It's going to be a terrible, terrible time. The darkest time that Israel will ever have to face. And the last psalm will be of those darkest days. So the Antichrist and his reign is really the theme of all four. Let's take the first one, Psalm 52. Many of them are very, very short. This one won't be extensive uh, exegesis. And uh, the the Psalm 52 um, starts out, To the chief musician, it's a mashil, that means it's an instructional psalm, if you will. A psalm of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said unto him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. This is dealing with betrayal. Doeg was an Edomite, an enemy of Israel. And uh, this is a man uh, that betrayed David. David was betrayed many times by those that would otherwise be considered his friends. But here the psalm actually in the inspired record has the historical identity labeled. That doesn't mean the psalm is limited to that. That just means that situation gave rise to to this particular psalm. Now let's just jump in. First verse. Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endureth continually. Here's a man who's boasting of his sin. When David sinned, he kept quiet about it. Because he was under deep conviction. When a man of the world sins, he loves it. Puts it on the masthead, brags about it. Big difference. Why boastest thyself in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endureth continually. So this is about. This is apparently dealing with not only a betrayer but a braggart, a very boastful person. Thy tongue devises mischiefs like a harp razor. Excuse me, like a sharp razor, working deceitfully. Thy tongue devises mischiefs like a sharp razor, working deceitfully. This guy is really um, a troublemaker. He isn't just lying to cover up something. He is working mischief, working deceit. And uh, a mark of the Antichrist will be that he'll brag about his sin. In fact, the Antichrist will be the epitome of this type of man. So this, I, you don't have to insist on it, but it certainly would fit so far. Psalm continues: Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteousness. You know, some people would rather tell a lie when it would have been easier to tell the truth. It fascinates me to run into people that don't lie. They don't. They don't. It's not lying. With, they don't have to. They'd be better off they didn't. They just. Do, and uh, so um, and that'll be true of the Antichrist. Selah. There is uh, you know, think of that. Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue. Devouring words. You know, it's interesting. This psalm. Well, in, in verse one, he was called a mighty man. Here, he's called a de- deceitful tongue. Um. You will not be able to believe a word he says. In the prophecies of Daniel, he's always described as someone who is shooting off his mouth. Book of Revelation, in Revelation 13 and elsewhere, he's always shooting off his mouth. And of all these different titles, the one I playfully label here is he's Mr. Big Mouth. Because it becomes an identity. If you look at all the passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament that relate to him, Almost all of them echo in some way this deceitful tongue. And uh, with devouring words, his words are the way he's going to gain power. By peace he shall destroy many, the prophet Daniel tells us. It's hard to get into this without getting diverted into a whole study of eschatology. I don't want to fall into that trap. But those of you that are familiar with that background, I suggest you... Consider the possibility this may fit it. God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living, Selah. And indeed, God is going to destroy the Antichrist. Um, He's going to pluck him out at the end. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in this abundance of his riches, and strengthened himself in his wickedness. Boy, you know, to get public office today takes cash. Undeserving people get into office because they can round up the money. Abe Lincoln would probably be unable to be president today. Didn't have the cash. (laughs) Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. And he is going to be the most deceitful, the most wicked leader the world has ever seen. And yet, he's the one that the world will embrace like they have embraced no other. And it's coming. It's coming. Psalm says, but I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it, and I will wait on thy name for it is good before thy saints. This brief little psalm gives us a prophetic picture of the Antichrist and of the believing remnant that will be hanging on during his reign and yet suffer under his persecution. And uh, they will... Um, Worship and praise God when he finally, at the end, will be dethroned. That's really what it's saying. So does Psalm 52 seem to fit that? I think so. Okay. We talked about, I'll call Psalm 52 Mr. Big Mouth. Let's take a look at the next one and see what other characteristics seem to be evident in this period. That's the denial of God himself. Psalm 53 will is almost identical with Psalm 14 that we studied some sessions ago with just a couple of subtle changes. Again, it's to the chief musician upon a mahalath that has to do with sickness and sorrow, as best as we can infer from it. And it corresponds to a mournful condition, uh, probably in the last days when the Antichrist is the ruler. And he, of course, will be an atheist. He certainly doesn't worship God. You remember Psalm 14 opens up, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. You know, there's a uh, na- National Atheist Day. Did you know that? We, we, you know, April 1st. That's uh, All Fools Day, right? You know, there, there are places you can dial an a 800 number and get a prayer for the day. You know, you've heard of those, haven't you? You know, there's a number for atheists. You dial that number and nobody answers? No? no? <laughs> you like that? Yeah, okay, all right. The, notice, it's not the, the, the fool, the fool has said in his mind. No, in his heart. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. It's not his mind that stands in the way of belief. Because the more you know about the frontiers of physics, the more you know about the frontiers of microbiology, any of these fields, the more you're confronted with irrefutable evidence of design in the universe and thus a designer. No, you have to be incredibly strong-willed to ignore or refute or be blind yourself to blindfold yourself to the evidences. There is no God. Why do? Because the secular scientist struggled so hard to avoid recognizing God because he doesn't want to be held accountable. If there's a designer, you know, it's astonishing. As we study the universe, most of you are familiar with the anthropic principle. Uh, the The secular scientists recognize that everything numerically is so well balanced, it's so delicately designed. They call that the anthropic principle. It, the, it's as if the whole universe is designed for man. They've more recently recognized, not only is that true, but it was also designed to be discovered. There's some very peculiar, rare relationships that make it possible to perceive the universe. We happen to be in the right place at the right time with the right tools. And it's teleological tele- tele- uh, in, uh, in, uh, linguistically. But uh, So uh, it takes a, a very, very strong commitment to try to ignore that. And because uh, if there's a designer, then there's accountability and people don't want accountability. And so that's why they cling to these attempts to try to explain away the existence of God. So they said in their heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. And uh, it's just that simple. Now, there are some aspects to the psalm. That are very similar to Psalm 14, uh, 14 and a little bit different. There are two uh, Hebrew words for God: Elohim and YHWH, or Jehovah, or however you want to. The, the tetragrammaton. And uh, the word Elohim is used in Genesis 1, for example. It's the term for God that emphasizes His role as the Creator of the universe. Elohim. And Elohim is a very strange word because in the in the Hebrew it's plural. You know, an I am, for certain classes of Hebrew nouns, the I am ending makes it a plural. There's a cherub and cherubim. Uh, there's i I'm drawing a blank. There's other. Anyway, the, 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 the I am ending. Um, Elohim is a plural noun. Now, Hebrew, like many languages, has to be declined. The noun must agree with the verb. And so... But every place Elohim is used in the Bible... It's a grammatical mistake because Elohim is a plural noun and it's used with a verb as if it's singular. In the grammar, there's the hint, if you will, of the Trinity. And uh, the explanation is that the hero Israel, our God, is one. The word is echad, which doesn't mean un; It means in union. In union. Not singular like in the absence of others. We have plurality and unity in the same term. But anyway, that's Elohim. It's a term... You encounter the as you start getting into the Torah, Elohim is what you're confronted with. The Yod He the four letters that are the unpronounceable name of God, are the name that's used with his covenant relationship with his people. And sometimes Elohim is the focused or the flavor that the word used, and other times it's Jehovah or Yah He The rabbis don't try to pronounce it, they just use the letters, yod He vav And and, and the, but it is the is the covenant name of God. Well, we have, two, we have in Psalm 14, back we studied there, it uses Elohim three times and Yorhe Vavhe four times. Okay, no big deal. Psalm 53, it's always Elohim. Why would that be? Because Psalm 53 is emphasizing God's role as a creator because his role as creator holds us without excuse. While I'm on this subject, there is a particular judgment that God pronounces on a culture that refuses to accept him as creator. You know, we as New Testament Christians tend to focus again and again and again on Christ the Redeemer, and indeed we should. I'm not demeaning that. Don't misunderstand me. But we sort of take, as New Testament Christians, we take the creator aspect for granted, of course he created the universe. Jesus Christ created the universe. Great. We miss the fact that in, in the... I, I was shocked when I was we doing a Genesis commentary as I went through the whole Bible to realize how important God's role as creator is all through the Bible. In Genesis and Isaiah, all through Psalms. It's interesting um, that God pronounces a specific judgment on a culture that denies to acknowledge him, that refuses to acknowledge him as a creator you know what that judgment is? Homosexuality. I was stunned to read. I always looked at homosexuality as an individual sin. Clearly the book of Leviticus and elsewhere that deals with it that way and most Christians deal with that. If you choose to go that path, there's going to be certain consequences. It never dawned on me to read. I, I, I read Romans chapter 1 so many times and it leaped out at me here less than a year ago in such crisp terms that it frankly startled me to realize from Romans chapter 1 verse 20 to the end of the chapter, just read it. And you'll notice that God is saying that they are without excuse and for those that refuse to acknowledge Him as creator, he will give them over to these things which are not convenient. It goes on to expressly, graphically describe the homosexual practices. And, uh, but it's interesting, God gives them over to that. I never realized that that's God's judgment for what? For failing to recognize Him as Creator. Now, this psalm is going to hit that pretty hard because the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. That, that, and the term that's lingering under the text here in the Hebrew is the word for God is Elohim, not Yorhe Vavhe. Okay? Let's go. So, Psalm 14 Elohim's only three out of seven. Psalm 53, it's 7 out of 7 usages there. Just a subtlety of the language you miss in the translation. 2 Thessalonians talks about this man of sin, the, the Antichrist. Let no man deceive you by any means, Paul says. For that day shall not come except there be a falling away first, that the man of sin be revealed. There's one of the titles of the Antichrist. The man of sin, he's called from this passage. That the man of sin be revealed. The son of perdition. There's a second title. Son of perdition. Used of only two people in the Bible, the Antichrist and Judas, son of perdition. And it goes on to talk about it. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. He opposes God and exalts himself over God. How does he do that? With words, his own words, obviously. He's boasting, bragging, exalting himself. Who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God. All that is called God. That includes Allah. That includes Allah. It includes everything in each culture. There's a name for whatever. He exalts himself above all that is called God. Brahma. Fill in the blank. Or that is worshipped. Anything that's worshipped. He's above it all. So that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God. That's a term that Paul would use only of the temple in Jerusalem, which is destined to be rebuilt. How do we know the temple is going to be rebuilt? Because Jesus, Paul, and John all make reference to it as standing at the end times. So he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the guy. The world's going to think he's great. And Paul, Paul goes on and says, remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? That's a fascinating sentence to me because Paul went to Thessalonica, he was there three weeks, then had to go on. He writes in the first letter to Thessalonians, then the second letter to Thessalonians, which are the most important letters prophetically in the New Testament. But they were all things that he's reminding them of that he taught when he was with them. When was he with them? During their first three weeks of Christian walk. He went to Thessalonica, they converted to Christ, there's there three weeks to be taught, and he's now writing back, hey, remember I taught you about the Antichrist, all all these exotic topics we taught in the first three weeks by Paul. Remember, you not that when when I was yet with you, I told you these things? This is not new news, in other words. He's just reminding them here. Okay, let's get back to Psalm 53. Psalm says, God looked down from heaven upon the children of men, to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE1.